on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Intense strategy, physically enduring tests and mental toughness. They are the Irish Army Rangers. And this week, Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney has announced that a select team of them have been deployed to Kabul Airport in Afghanistan, where they are going to assist with the evacuation of remaining Irish citizens in the country. We're sending some of our best trained Defence Force personnel with two very experienced diplomats. And I think they'll do a good job. I don't want to raise expectations unrealistically that everybody will get out as a result of this. Uh, And even beyond the 31st of this month into September, we will continue to work with Irish citizens should they still be in Kabul. So who are the Irish Rangers and what sets them apart from other Irish military units? Today, we speak to renowned security and defence analyst Declan Power. The Ranger Wing are uh, and have always been since 1980 the, the king of that community. Right now, the scenes on the ground at Kabul airport are ones of chaos. So what can the Irish Army Ranger Wing expect to encounter when they arrive? Journalist Lisa Karimi will share an eyewitness account. When you go near to the airport, uh, just when you just getting closer to the area, from that moment you see lots of families waiting in the roads with kids, women, and they have just nothing with themselves. Expect one bag, one small bag, and that's it. The security situation for Irish citizens attempting to access Kabul airport remains extremely volatile. But Coveney believes the benefits outweigh the risk, as the Irish Army Ranger Wing will aim to help in the evacuation of as many Irish citizens as possible. I'm Denise Callanan, and you're listening to Independent.ie's current affairs podcast, In Focus. This week, not without risk, the Irish Army Rangers in Kabul. Joining me now is Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst. Declan, can you tell me who exactly are the Irish Army Rangers and what sets them apart from other units in the Irish Defence Forces? Well, the Army Ranger Wing, to give them their full title, are the premier element of the Irish Defence Force Special Operations Community. There would be a number of other uh, elements to it, uh, your reconnaissance elements within the Cavalry Corps, uh, the Naval Diving Unit. They, they could all be considered part of the Special Operations Community, the special search teams that exist along the border. But the Ranger Wing are, uh, and have always been since 1980, the, the king of that community. Um, their origins go back to the 1960s, when a small 
small team of Irish soldiers were sent to Fort Benning in Georgia uh, in, the, in uh, the United States to train uh, alongside the US uh, Army's Ranger Battalions as they were then. But at that stage it was to do with upgrading the standard of infantry skills and soldiering, fitness, endurance, all of those things that the and, and learn the lessons that the Americans had learned in uh, combat in Vietnam at the time. By 1980, uh, the world had shifted a lot uh, and the threat of terrorism, domestic terrorism, uh, was something that Ireland couldn't ignore no more than the rest of our European partners and particularly our our near neighbour, the UK. Uh, The issue of the activities of the provisional IRA, the uh, difficulties that they were providing for with the the Gardaí in terms of policing and the regular army. So that's where the Ranger Wing got born out of. So today's army Ranger Wing, they they are based in the Corral. I won't go into detail about their numbers or, or, or that because that would be a matter of operational security. But to become a ranger, you must be a member of the Defence Forces first. Uh, you don't have to be in the Army. You could be in, start off in either the Army, the Naval Service, the Air Corps. You do have to be at the rank of what's co- called Private Three Star or Able Seaman or Airman. So that's the basic grade soldier after they go through their basic training and their advanced uh, core training. Uh, and usually the typical scenario would be most soldiers would have been in the army approximately two to three years. They would maybe have had a trip, an operational trip overseas on uh, one of the, the missions either with the UN or EU or NATO-led operations, as is the case these days. And uh, they would put themselves forward uh, for selection. But before that, the Ranger Wing now, they run information days. So the soldiers who are applying for this, uh, learn about what's ahead of them because it's a culture shock. And uh, depending on the part of the army you're in, if you go through your basic training, you go into an infantry battalion like the 3rd Infantry Battalion in the Corral, which is very active uh, and the fitness standards are very high, it's less of a culture shock. If maybe you've been a sailor at sea where you mightn't have the same opportunities for fitness or you're uh, a clerk in the Air Corps, uh, those are the people that kind of need this information update so they can start to get fit to the level to start the selection course because you don't lose good people just because they weren't you know, fully aware or prepared. So there are a number of uh, little mini selection uh, elements and if you get through them, then you go on the selection proper. Selection is about four weeks thereabouts. Could be a little bit longer, could be a little bit less. It's not about training you to be something at that point. It's testing you. And the tests are really about your physical and mental resilience and endurance and adaptability. Those are the three key traits of any special forces soldier. Uh, you don't, you're not always going to be the fittest person in the room. You're not always going to be the most resilient. But what they look for, what the instructors in the wing would look for, is that you are constantly looking to attain the best that you can be and that you're constantly getting back up after you fall down, both figuratively and literally. So those, those are the kinds of things that are being tested. If you pass selection, then you go on to train proper as a ranger soldier. And there are a variety of specialisms from diving to parachuting to combat medic and, and a lot more therein. There are three of the main ones. And most members of the wing that have been in it for a number of years would have cross-trained between, between all of those three. And because we don't have quite the same tempo of overseas combat operations and because unlike the, the emergency response unit and the police, we're not, you know, the, the ranger wing are not on constant uh, operational status, there's a lot of time given to training. So when they are on operational status, you're talking about individuals that have honed their craft, that have a good mixture of tradecraft experience and that are constantly training and that are very adaptable and agile in both physicality and in thought.
I felt that as we are coming to the end of the this phase, if you like, of the evacuation process between now and the 31st, that having people on the ground in Kabul airport uh, would maximise the opportunity for us to get people out, um, coordinating military to military and, of course, being led by two very experienced foreign affairs diplomats. Kabul airport is now the epicentre of a chaotic scramble to escape the Taliban. Journalist Lisa Karimi from Current Time TV paints a harrowing picture of what awaits the Irish Defence Forces when they arrive at Kabul airport. When you go near to the airport, uh, just when you just getting closer to the area, from that moment you see lots of families waiting in the roads with kids, women, and they have just nothing with themselves. Expect one bag, one small bag, and that's it. When you go a little bit closer to the gate, there. In that moment, you heard lots of firing. The Taliban are located exactly at this point. They are managing the cars who are entering the area. They are managing the people who want to go to the uh, to the gate. So they were not firing on people, but they were firing on air as well, because uh, the people were the numbers of people who were waiting to, for entry was too much. That was Lisa Karimi there from Current Time TV. Declan, we've just heard what the situation is like on the ground. What's going to be expected of the Irish Army Ranger Wing when they land in Kabul? Well, we should remember that they're there as part of a team. It is a, it, it's what's known as an emergency civil assistance team. Uh, as such, the, that means that there are different pieces of the state jigsaw put together to uh, give assistance to Irish citizens in these extreme situations to manage emergencies and crisis. So this, in this case, you've got nine members of the Army Ranger Wing and two uh, diplomats, two officials from the Department of Foreign Affairs who would be probably of a reasonably senior level. The reason they're there is to un- to, to show the Irish state are taking this seriously and that they can communicate with the senior levels uh, of I would imagine the primarily the US uh, forces that are there on the ground. So if there's any issues or confusion about access to seats on planes. The members of the Ranger Wing, their primary role would be to provide close protection to those two diplomats, even though they will all be inside the perimeter, the secure perimeter that has been created uh, by the European and, and US forces. You know, I think the British military are on the outer perimeter and then you have the US and other European uh, Union countries uh, working away inside. Uh, the practicalities will be part of what the Ranger Wing will have to deal with. There will be a number of things that aren't on their to-do list from the state that will crop up. Uh, I say that just based on my own experience of seeing some of these situations when I served on UN missions in Africa, uh, in particular in Darfur, when a number of humanitarian organisations had to be evacuated um, for a variety of reasons and of threat uh, threat levels that uh, rose significantly. So when you come into a situation, an airport in a third world country is a chaotic place at the best of times. The heat, the smells, the tension and the stress, everybody is trying to get somewhere. That's on an ordinary day. Okay, because the flights are so erratic, the, the scheduling is so erratic. You add then a situation of tension and, and organizations trying to get out. The first big problem usually is trying to separate 
the wheat from the chaff, if I can use that phrase. In other words, those who are legitimately entitled to go and those who aren't. And so you're dealing with documentation. You're dealing then with communications glitches. You have a list and you're very clear who it is that you have to get out or what organisation and what numbers they have that are legitimately entitled to get out and are documented appropriately. Now you have to face the scenario of the various people, the gatekeepers, the officials, be they troops, be they Western troops, be they, in this case, Taliban officials, uh, trying to communicate with them because oftentimes there will be glitches and stoppages uh, where people are being blocked because somebody doesn't understand the documentation they have. Uh, and that is, a, that is a real central part of the job if you're organising an evacuation is to try and ensure that everybody at the different levels of gatekeeping knows who to let through and who who not to let through, and that you're const- in constant communication and liaison with them. That's exhausting, it's tiring, and it's very much uh, a job that requires force of will and forces of persuasion and ingenuity in communication. You, just because you have the authority, you have the rank on your shoulder, or you have the documentation in your hand, I can assure you, that does not mean that you will necessarily be listened to. So you have to be very culturally aware. You have to be figuring out, using, you know, studying the body language and figuring out who's who in the zoo here in terms of hierarchy. Uh, what does make this a little bit easier uh, for, for our, uh, the, the team that's going out there is that they will primarily be dealing mostly with Western forces. Now, it'll still be it'll still be difficult. There's a lot of tension, a lot of stress, but everybody will be speaking English. Everybody will have a common training and standing. And then if you have any personal connectivity, and certainly there will be goodwill in abundance from uh, our American and, and UK partners, and indeed our European partners. Uh, we've flown in with the French and the Germans are there, and indeed I think the Poles are there. All countries that we have extremely good relationships with. So that will, that will be to our benefit. However, the reality is that there are thousands of people that have converged on Kabul airport who were never going to have any chance of getting out. And they're obfuscating and obstructing, uh, not intentionally, I'm sure, but uh, as is human nature, those who are legitimately in those queues in as much as we could call them cues. And then the Taliban, every so often, as I understand it from, from things I've heard about what's happening on the ground there, will push them back and, and in, in an untoo gentle fashion. And there would be shots fired and there would be moments of tension. And it's here that it'll be key for the ranger wing to, to manoeuvre uh, in that atmosphere uh, to assist and maybe to apply the intent of the diplomats. We've got 10 Irish citizens out, virtually all of the single Irish uh, citizens that are, that are working for NGOs and organisations are now out, with the exception of one. Uh, the, the remaining are 24 Irish citizens and 12 non-Irish family members that have visas to come to Ireland. Um, and uh, they are predominantly Afghan-Irish, if you like. Um, they're Irish citizens, and we're absolutely committed to them. But the reason why it's more complicated for them uh, is because, one, they are part of family units that we have to try to get out together. And secondly, because they are, um, they are Afghan as well as Irish, uh, it is more difficult in many ways to get them through the crowd and get them into the airport. And Declan, do you see a situation where a member of the Irish Army Ranger Wing might have to be sent past their own perimeter to extract an Irish citizen 
or do you think it'd be quite orderly in the ground that they would know that this is where we're working from now here at the airport? Well, I don't think it'll be quite orderly on the ground, but I also don't see any situation where a, a member of the Ranger team is going to be sent outside of the perimeter. I think they will, from time to time, operate on the edge of that perimeter where people will have been identified as legitimate Irish citizens or, or people that were legitimately uh, awarded seats on a plane that are going to get visas and that are in that vicinity. And it may be the case of where they have to go slightly into a kind of no man's land area, but within the vicinity of the the, uh, the airport to help re- move those people through the crowds. I could see that happening, but I would uh, be more than happy to, uh, to to nail my colours to the mast here and say that none of those, that Ranger team will be going anywhere outside of the airport. And for very simple practical reasons too, anybody who is at that airport that has proper documentation to go to Ireland will most likely get out in the next few days, I I would imagine. But there are probably a number, indeed I'm sure there are a number of European Union uh, citizens and documented uh, Afghans who have never made it to the airport because of the roadblocks that the Taliban have set up and who probably haven't made it to Kabul, who are stranded in Kandahar and various other parts of Afghanistan. So, you know, the, going outside of the airport would be superfluous. It, you know, and those, they wouldn't have any authority and it would lead to confrontation, unnecessary confrontation with the Taliban. I think the key factor here, and this is one of the advantages to having uh, ranger personnel on the ground. They're, they're trained to think ta- tactically and strategically. And their job is to get those people that are earmarked for embarkation for Ireland out of there safely. That's the mission. And they will use whatever tactical means is at their disposal in terms of influence, persuasion, physically wrestling people through crowds, doing whatever needs to be done to keep people safe, working closely with their comrades from other countries. In the aftermath of this, There may be a second phase to this, and I think it's been telegraphed a little bit in terms of what President Biden has said and other world leaders, where the troops get on the planes, get out of there by August 31st. And that's probably no bad thing because the circus has to come to an end there. And then those that were trying to get on planes who never were going to will return to their homes. Things will quieten down a bit. And then quiet, practical diplomacy can take place because that's the other thing that I can uh, attest to, you know, from my own experience, is that oftentimes in these tense situations, the best thing is to try and change the dynamic. And oftentimes, uh, in my own experience where I was working these situations, I advised groups to shelter in place until things calmed down. And then you would have people act as interlocutors with the forces of the state or if not state forces, armed groups, whoever control the situation and liaise with them, get uh, them to accept and understand the bona fides of the people that are being got out and ensure that that percolates down through the chain of command as it, such as it is. So that means, again, you're back to practical on the ground, cultural awareness, communication, uh, shepherding people from where they're sheltering in place with the acquiescence of the authorities in this case, the Taliban, and getting them on planes to get out. Now, that could there could be a delay because there might be a, a wait for commercial aircraft to start flying into Kabul, and that will, you could be talking about a delay of a month or two. But it could mean that people would be able to get out much more safely. And that is the next phase that I think the international community will be looking at. And with regards to hierarchy, um, Declan, I'm quite interested in who would be the superiors for the Irish 
um, for the Ranger Wing out there and with US um, forces controlling the airport, are we answerable? Would troops be answerable to them out there or how does it all work? Well, not directly. This is a very unusual situation because, you know, our team are not going out as part of uh, an international mission as such. Well, it is an international mission, but it's very ad hoc. And the key objective here is getting your citizens out and being part of the process to do that. So to clarify this, the command and control would work along the lines of the the team are directly responsible to the Irish state. In this case, this ECAT team is under the stewardship of the Department of Foreign Affairs. They're the lead agency. They've been the lead agencies before in the evacuation of Tripoli or in the the Cummins kidnapping uh, resolution in Darfur. And that was really one of the first times that you had a coming together of different uh, agencies, uh, negotiators from Angarda Siakana, the Department of Foreign Affairs, um, serving members of the defence forces, former members who had uh, who had particular expertise, uh, all pulled together uh, into one team, and somebody has to be in charge, and that, that set the tone. The Cummins kidnapping set the tone. Uh, I was attached to a UN mission there at the time uh, in a particular role. I was diverted up to North Darfur to to support uh, the team, and the Department of Foreign Affairs were very much in charge. It's their baby when it comes to dealing and to managing anything that involves uh, foreign and international engagement. So in the case of Kabul, they they would be in charge at the strategic level. Uh, the diplomats are probably on the ground when it comes to liaison and making decisions about uh, what needs to be done. They would be making the decisions. The team would work with them and under their guidance. But when it comes to tactical matters on the ground, matters to do with safety and protection, the ranger uh, team leader would be the one who would be in charge. Now, as a matter of courtesy, military courtesy, whoever the commanding officer is within the area that they're working, could be a US officer, could be a UK officer, could be a French officer, they would report to them, they would get an overview of what's happening and the senior officer of whatever that contingent is that's holding the area that the Irish team are working in would be aware of who they are, what they're doing, and there would be a a liaison arrangement. And there would be a part of the reason for touching base with them would be in a worst case scenario, if there was some breakdown, a a massive breakdown in security, such as an attack on the airport by person or persons unknown, either to attack the Taliban, whereby the West, the Western forces maybe get caught in the middle or where there's a direct attack on the Western forces, then all military personnel have to know exactly what's expected of them. They have to know their zones of defence and uh, how they plug in so they don't exist in splendid isolation. And in that scenario, and that's an extreme scenario, in that scenario, then that team for the t- purpose of defence of their area would come under somebody else's direct command for that period. Declan, you've spoken about possibly a second phase in the near future of, you know, some sort of evacuation process possibly beginning again for citizens of Afghanistan. Do you see the return of any international military in Afghanistan? And and through that, do you see the chance of any Irish troops returning to the country? I think it's highly unlikely you'll see any Western international uh, military forces, uh, Western forces going back in anytime soon. Um, You could see a situation arise uh, in a in the next year or two where you might see Russian or Chinese uh, military advisors or something of that nature, depending on how the relationships evolve. We're moving now, I think, into what I could describe as the next phase of evolution. The Taliban have taken control. Uh, They will probably want to demonstrate there is a a cross-party cooperative approach at the upper echelons. Uh, Certainly the 
uh, upper echelon Taliban leaders are exhibiting a level of strategic awareness and understanding. And the world is watching. And one of the things that they can do to, uh, to, to benefit themselves uh, and the Western world can benefit too if we, if we read it properly, is pull out as agreed on the 31st. Take all the, the, the troops away from the equation and the, the hoopla and the flags. And then the Taliban can quite legitimately say to their internal and external audiences, we now run Afghanistan. The, the question about then the return of, of the UN, I don't see the return of the UN in a, in a peacekeeping type role here because they would need support of Western nations that have already pulled out of Afghanistan. Uh, the, the Afghans would not you know, want to see troops of any kind back in their soil. But there are lots of different UN inputs, agencies such as UNHCR, UNICEF uh, and various others. And they act as an umbrella uh, group for various INGOs that will be needed and that will help uh, that will help initially provide the urgent humanitarian services for people that have uh, no means to live you know and access to, to, to food and water that's the initial phase but then the long-term development uh, and that's where you could see a gradual erosion of some of the harshness of the Taliban uh, attitudes now that's a very optimistic approach but I've been in places where the truth of what happens or the, the reality of what happens is in the middle grey area, the messiness. And wins can be gained. And you know, I saw it in uh, places like Darfur and uh, Sierra Leone. Uh, well, Sierra Leone and Liberia are success stories. They're democratic countries. They're successful states that were born out of tragic war. Um, say Darfur, South Sudan, they're still works in progress. Uh, there's still a lot of violence there, but they're in slightly better states than they were 10 years ago. We've spoken a lot today, Declan, about, you know, these men that are part of the Irish Army Ranger Wing and there's, you know, this intense strength of, you know, mental and physical being. Are there any women in the Irish Army Ranger Wing and or have there been any women that have possibly gone for selection that you know of? Well, there, there are certainly uh, since the early 1980s, there are women in the Irish Defence Forces. Uh, and, you know, in the period, certainly that I was there and since women have become uh, much more accepted and you, they're in greater numbers and they're across the board. And I, I've worked closely with women in a variety of roles in the Defence Forces. And, uh, the, the, you know, there's nothing to say that women don't have a variety of skills, abilities, mental and physical toughness. However, the Ranger Wing is a very particular unit. Most, you know, a huge number of men fail selection for a variety of reasons. Uh, since I think the 90s, the, the mid-90s, women were allowed attend for selection. Uh, a number of women have attempted it. Uh, they, no, no woman to date has, has passed it. Now, that's not a slur on women. I think we do have to be realistic here. Where, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, certain types of physiques are, are better suited to the intensity of training. Uh, and that's what I'm just talking even just within, within, man, uh, within the male sphere. And what tends to, and this is the same in most militaries across the world and most special forces. I know so, a couple of female officers passed the U.S. Army's Ranger course, which is different to Ranger selection in that the U.S. Army have a special forces entity. Uh, they have the Green Berets, they have Delta Force. The Rangers are different in context now to, the, uh, to our Rangers. Our Rangers are expected to be special forces like the SAS. 
So a lot of soldiers suffer lower limb injuries. Uh, you know, if you uh, upper limb injuries are common too as well, and just uh, food poisoning, exhaustion, depends on the physique. Some, contrary to popular belief, some of the people who fail are the, the, the bigger, more powerful looking individuals because they're just nearly too big to last in an endurance environment on the ground. They need more fuel to keep going. So the, the classic rugby player build isn't always ideal. Um, there is a, a variety of, of things at play and what has tended to happen to women who have gone for selection, both with our special forces and with others, in Europe and the US, is that uh, there is a proliferation of, of lower limb and back injuries. There was a very interesting article by a female Marine officer uh, in one of their publications. She led an injury, an engineering company, a combat engineering company in, uh, in Afghanistan about 10 years ago. And she was just acknowledging that she was the fittest of the fit. She played ice hockey in her, her university. She was a very tough physical woman, but she was acknowledging that certain types of activities uh, for her as a woman, just uh, she was depleted. She didn't have the muscle mass or the, those same things. Now, I think what's important to understand here uh, before the, the feminists of, of, of Ireland uh, look for me to be crucified is that there are lots of different areas and uh, ways to serve. And just because somebody doesn't pass selection doesn't mean that there's something wrong with that system and that we reduce the standards. A very small percentage of people pass the mental and physical tests. Those that don't go on to serve in, in, in other areas, and there are other high-end areas. I worked for a period in what is now our uh, intelligence uh, surveillance and target acquisition area, the, the Cavalry Corps, and they've become what are known as ISTAR specialists. And there are quite a number of female officers and soldiers within that unit that work to a very high level. Uh, and quite a number, I think we've had our first uh, uh, female officer in the Naval Diving Unit as well. So who knows, maybe in time to come there might be female rangers, but if there aren't, that's certainly no slur on women or anybody else concerned with ranger selection. That was Declan Power, security and defence analyst who served in three combat arms of the Irish Army. You've been listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie, produced by Gordon Hayden and sound designed by John Smith. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow the latest on Afghanistan from our current affairs team on independent.ie.